0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. We're beginning our series called Sent. As you can see from that video, in that message or the series, we're going to be talking about God's plan for your life. And so that we know if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, he's got one specific plan for you. He wants you to turn to him. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine says that God's not willing, He doesn't desire that any would perish apart from him, and he's patient, the reason why he hasn't come back yet. He's waiting for people to turn to him. And so that might be you. And so all the other stuff we talk about, that's step one in God's plan. But we also know, and maybe if you've been around church very long, you know that we've all been given the same mission as followers of Jesus, to make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus and he says to his disciples, go make other learners, disciples of me, teach them to obey everything I've taught you. So only the stuff you already know, you don't have to get to some pinnacle of knowledge in order to do this, uh, baptize them in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit, have them make public declaration of their association with me because they're supposed to be salt and light in this world. And so here's the reality. A lot of people in church know that information and have never, never done that activity. And so this series, our hope for you, is that you can move from being affiliated with the message of the Bible, affiliated with the church, affiliated with God, to being activated for that mission. And so that's our hope. Uh, God will work and stir in each of our hearts as he's doing different things in each one of us. Today, we're going to talk about his universal and unique plan for us as we lay the groundwork for this series. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, you can go there. We put verses on the screen. But there are a lot of verses around that that impact its meaning. So you might want to have your own Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for your word and for meeting us in this moment. That you knew at this moment that we would be on this screen or in this room and hear these words. You will supernaturally do things beyond what I could ever ask or imagine. So I won't just start guessing. But would you heal somebody today? Heal somebody spiritually. Heal somebody physically. Heal somebody. Heal a relationship. I pray. Uh, there are situations in this room where there's a spouse cheating on another spouse. there this just be a day of repentance and turning to you and turning back to their spouse. And there are people here that have had lifelong addictions to pornography, substances. Will you free them? Bring us out of bondage. There are people here that think they're Christians that are not because they believe facts, but they don't actually have you giving them new life, and trying to do this thing is exhausting. I pray that you give them rest. God, will you do beyond what I could ever ask or imagine? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever longed for an adventure? Like, you just want more. Like, some of you are like, nope, I like being comfortable. I like my routine. I like doing that. But you think about the different adventures that are out there. For some of you... It might mean hiking. I met a guy yesterday. He had just started hang gliding. That's never been on even my radar of things to try. Some of you have teenagers, your parents have teens, and you've actually looked underneath their bed. That's amazing. (laughs) Congratulations that you would do that. Um, At the end of the service today, appropriate that we're starting the scent service. We're going to send out some missions teams to different places. This evening, my wife and I are going to be hopping on a plane with about 55 people from our church, uh, most of them from our church. They're going to the Holy Land, going to Israel. Our kids are going with us, and they sometimes act like we're actually going into the Bible. Like we're going to be wearing sandals and sleeping in tents. <laughs> so last night my wife was like, I can't wait for them to see the hotel. Like there's actual beds. It's amazing. And so, But I was trying to tell them the significance of the places. And so we had what we called a stand-up meeting at our house, which just meant this isn't going to go long. Don't ask me a thousand questions. Here's what you need to know before we leave on this trip. And so we go to the stand-up meeting. They all sat down. I was the only one standing. And uh, I said, Hey, we're going to go to some significant spots. One of the places we're going to go is the Mount of Olives. I said, Maybe you've seen it in pictures. If you ever seen the dome on the rock, <clears throat> the picture of Jerusalem, kind of the famous picture of Jerusalem. I said, If you don't put your earpiece in, because they're teenagers. And so they start hearing a bunch of information, they're like, Lord, you know, pull that out. I said, if you don't put your earpiece in, you're just going to be like, oh, there's a Muslim thing on top of where it used to be the temple. All right, now what else is going on? I said, that is one of the most geographically significant spots on the entire planet. I said, it's the last place that Jesus' feet were touching the ground. It's the next place when Jesus comes back. His foot's going to touch the ground. Mountain's going to split in two. It's where he stood with his disciples and said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. And so i are talking through some of those pieces. And then I get a Bible question. One of them raises their hand. So I said, Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came back while we were there? I said, Oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> Second question from another daughter, thinking about his foot touching the earth What if he steps on me when he comes back? <laughs> I said, Honey, I need to wrap up this sermon for tomorrow. Can you handle whether Jesus is going to step on people when he comes back? I'm going to go deal with that. And for them, it's an adventure. Never been to this place before. Never long for adventure. You ever wonder in your Christianity if there's more? More than what you're experiencing? Just think about, for some people, this is it. Like, it's just this church gathering. And that's kind of, that's pretty sad for anybody that knows there's more than that. But for all of us, even in this this American Christian culture, it's it's less than what we read about in the Bible. When did the Bible stop being true? When did it start being that that's for the disciples will wake up and wonder if God's going to do a miracle today? The disciples will wonder, aren't we the disciples? Aren't we today his disciples? Aren't we the ones that are supposed to make disciples? And when did he stop being God? Or maybe we stopped paying attention. See, he's got an adventure for you to walk on. And different people don't go on adventures for different reasons, some because there's challenges, some because the unknown, fear. They're distracted, they're used to the routine, they long for comfort. Lots of reasons we don't do that. But sometimes the adventures are even unexpected. Last night, after my wife and kids went to bed, I watched the movie Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio. You know that one? It's based on, inspired by a true story about a a, a fur trader in the 1800s named Hugh Glass who was attacked and mauled by a grizzly bear. (laughs) So I was texting with the pastors about it. I was like, I don't know if I've seen this movie before or not. I was going back and forth with them, asking them questions. Pastor Brad said, If you tell tomorrow about him getting mauled by a bear, I'm leaving. (laughs) It's pretty graphic. It's based on a true story. I did some reading, and those who are actually familiar with the story said that the movie was not intense enough. It didn't set up all the stuff he had been through to get to that point, and probably downplayed some of the things he had to overcome to survive, The summary of the movie is that he gets mauled by this bear, and then he's alive for about five days. He's about 99% dead, and his friends are starting to get, their their lives are starting to be put in danger because he's hanging on to life, so they decide to leave him, assuming that he will die, but he does not. He can't speak because the bear had poked a hole in his throat. There's one scene where he takes a drink and water starts leaking out. He's got to fix that. We won't get into the details of how here. I don't want Pastor Brad leaving, or any of you. He's got to forage for food. He's got to deal with the elements. He's got to, there's other people that he feels like he's in danger from. He's got to hide from. He floats down this river. He can't walk because his leg was so damaged when he was mauled by the bear. So he crawls, many historians believe, somewhere between 80 and 200 miles, crawls. My favorite scene of the movie, though, is when he gets back. At this point, he's a different person. He started to restore some of his voice. And he's talking about going back out into the wilderness. And the guy that was with him, one of the people that abandoned him, says, we can't let you go back out there. He says back, I'm not afraid to die. I've already done that. Hmm. Why did he fight so hard to get back? What was it that drove him that he wouldn't just walk, he would crawl? 80 100, maybe 200 miles? Hmm. Gotta be a strong motivator. We don't ever know historically exactly what motives are. In the movie, they portray it as if it's revenge. Historians talk about justice. Historians talk about his love for his family, his responsibility, just a will to survive. We don't know. Here's what we do know about life whether you want an adventure or not, you will go on one. There will be unexpected challenges. Some of you are dealing with stuff right now you would have never picked, but God's going to use. And so I just ask you today, have you ever longed for more? Because I believe that God has more for us. Ephesians chapter 2, just one verse today, talks about two elements of what he has for us in his plan for us. Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, um, in verse 10, I did a video uh, last week just an equipping video for our church, people that are going to get involved with our discipleship process uh, to teach you how to study the Bible. And we use this verse, and one of the things I say when we start going through this verse is simply that it starts with the word for, and you've got to then ask yourself, why is that word there? Is it a preposition? No, it's not. Is it a conjunction? It is. Then what is it connecting to? Because you don't just say for and then start talking, and so it's connecting us to a context. The context is very famous verses in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You're saved by grace, through faith. It's a gift of God. And so God gives us the gift of faith. He gives us the gift of grace. He's giving us the gift of eternal life. And it says, not of works, or you'd brag about it. You'd get real cocky. For we are his workmen. So he's the one doing the work. We're his workmanship. But why is he even talking about that at all? And that ties back to chapter one, actually. Verses one through 13 are about a new identity in Christ. So he's talking to people who are believers. That when you come to Christ, you not only receive eternal life, new life, you become a new person. A new creation is what's called in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Well, in Ephesians 1 it says what that new creation is a new position, a new relationship, a new identity. And then Paul says, I pray that your eyes would be open to see the power that does this. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, verses 18, 19, 20, if you're skimming through your own Bible. Then in chapter 2, it says, Oh, by the way, that same power is what gave you new life in Christ. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it talks about what that looked like. We'll dive into it a little bit more in the message. But the key is verse four, but God. And so my question for you is this. Have you had a but God moment? Not did you grow up in church? Not what do you believe? Not are you moral? Do you not do these things? Do you do these things? Have you had a but God moment? You were living a mundane life, but God pulled you out of that. You were going your own way, apart from God, in a, a world system that leads you to individualism, and in a world system that leads you away from God, but God grabbed you. You were in darkness, but God, you were, as Ephesians says, without hope and without God, but God. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, hey, you know that idolaters aren't going to heaven, right? This is the Bible, so you can be offended by it. Don't email me. Jesus at heaven.com. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Liars, adulterers, male prostitutes, and such were some of you, but you were washed by God, cleansed by the Holy Spirit. So if you had that, that is the most important question you can ask yourself today. If the answer is no, his plan is that you would have that. I pray that's what happens in these moments. If you have had that, this verse is for you. If you haven't, this verse is actually not for you. You can listen, but it's like coming to the family meeting, and we're talking about going to Israel, and you're not going. Don't ask me if Jesus is going to step on you. We'll see what's going to happen right here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Look at what it says. For we, those of us who've had a but God moment, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So in that movie, um, The Revenant, what happens is he has to figure out a way to eat. He doesn't have a gun. There's a scene where he takes a stick and points it at some, I don't know what they are even. I'm not out there. I'm I'm an indoorsy kind of person. Bison, elk, some big deer looking thing. All right. He can't shoot it though. Gun has no ammo. Instead, he's pillaging for mushrooms and fungus off of a log. He's scavenging for food. One of the things we do when we come to the Word of God is we're going, Where are the nutrients for my spiritual life? And that's why we're just focusing on one verse today. We're going to squeeze the juice out of a few words, three specifically, in this passage. The first one, the reason why I'm even talking about adventure, is because of what it says at the end of the verse. These are good works, which God, so the God's got a plan for you, which he prepared beforehand. Now, some of you, seminary, I know we've got a couple seminary professors that attend our church, a couple people that have been to seminary, things like that. You can let the Arminians and the Calvinists argue about whether or not there's free will or sovereignty, because when you read the Bible, the answer is yes. <laughs> God is sovereign, and you have responsibility and choices. Yep, okay. we get to the end of that conversation. What does it, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. If God prepared these beforehand, this means this is what you were made for. And you were made for more than spectating at church, listening to one guy talk about what it's like theoretically or was like a long time ago. You were meant for more than just the mundane. You were meant for more than just morality. A lot of times in the South, we make Christianity just about be a good boy or be a good girl. And so a lot of, a lot of men specifically come to church and like, I don't, This isn't. I don't like this. I'm good. It means you were made for more more than just morality, more than just a disposition. It's deeper than a disposition. It's more powerful, more potent than just some pithy little statements we say during difficult times of life. There's more. And you're supposed to walk in it. What does it mean to walk in it? If you have ever been, as an adult, not part of church, and then you come and become part of church and you hear how people talk, it's weird. It's weird. And some of us, we do it out in the community. I remember one time being at a restaurant, and a person from the church came up to me. They knew I was a pastor. I didn't really know them very well. And they were saying lots of uh, christian ease type language. And they said, so how's your walk? I'm like, I'm sitting down right now, and you're kind of interrupting my meal. What are you talking about? They meant, how's my relationship with Jesus? But I... Like to goof around sometimes. And so I was like, I don't know. I'm just, do Christians walk different than other people? I didn't know. Is there like a special limp from <laughs> wrestling with God? Like, what happens there? A little Jacob, it's Old Testament reference. And uh, if you notice in life, there, there are people that aren't Christians and there's different walks, right? Like, there's people that kind of have a swagger. You ever see those people that come into a room like, I'm here. What are we going to do now? And there's other people that are like victim walk, like, oh man, something bad's going to happen, like just waiting. Some people have a lamp. My cool guy. I'm just here. Michael Jackson was so cool. He invented a walk, the moonwalk. Remember like, oh, that? And he stood at a lean. He intentionally wore floods, and it was cool. Like if I wore floods, I get beat up. And he wore floods. He was like, cool. One glove. Who can? How can you be so cool to wear one glove? That's amazing. Created his own walk. There's a, if you're a dancer, there's lots of walks. What is the Bible talking about? Because it gets talked about a lot in the Bible. And it's not saying what we're usually talking about. Look at just Ephesians. So to put this in context, Ephesians chapter 2 at the beginning of this chapter. So immediate context. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 in which you formerly walked. So there was a way when before your but God moment, verse 4, there's a way you used to walk. Okay, in verse 10, we're talking about a different kind of walk. If you jump to the, toward the end of the book, chapter 4, therefore I, Paul talking, he's the writer, he's in prison, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so there's something about the walk with God's plan for your life, the calling with which you've been called. Chapter 4, verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, so there is a unique walk for Christians, I don't think it's this, but there is one. That's Ephesians chapter five, verse two, and walk in love. Okay, so that's part of the characteristic of this walk. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Whoa, that's a different level of love. And he gave himself up for us. Okay, so your walk is laying your life down for other people. For you were formerly in darkness, but not, so you're supposed to walk as somebody who's in the light. Walk as children of the light. Ephesians chapter five, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, be circumspect, aware of what's going on around you, aware of how life works. Read the book of Proverbs. Aware of how the Lord's leading, not as unwise, but as wise. Walk. So the idea of walk is that you're moving in a continual direction. Now we all know that's not how it always works. You've heard the statement before, right? Two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's five steps back. But there's distractions, and we get sideways. Even if you're not a Christian you know the idea of using walk as a metaphor for your life and often associated with adventure. Neil Armstrong, he lands on the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Martin Luther King Jr., who through his oratory skills inspired a lot of people to make a change in a world where he saw this is not the way God designed it. And he said... Just because you can't see the whole staircase doesn't mean you can't take the first step. Oh, so stepping, walking forward is going to imply unknown, fear. Probably it's an adventure. And that's what you were made for. That's what our passage is talking about today. And really, the other two words we're going to look at, I'm going to give you two points for it. They show us where this adventure leads us. First, it leads us inwardly to our own transformation. Now, many of us, when we talk about God's plan, that's not what you want to know. Who do I marry? Where do I live? What job am I supposed to have? What should I do in this decision? How do I fix the people around me that aren't the way that I want them to be? God wants to do a work in you first. The adventure starts within. So you must, you want to go on God's adventure? You must step into spiritual transformation. That's the point. It's more articulate on your screen, but into is the key language. You got to step, you got to walk into inner work, heart work. That's what's being talked about with our next word, which is workmanship in our passage. I'm reading the English standard version in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Okay? So, what does it mean to be his workmanship? I'm studying the Bible. Sometimes it's helpful to look at other translations. Some of you know more than one language, um, maybe coding, computer language. I will not try. I say, i you all." I do not. That's all I got. That's all I got. I don't do that. I don't speak, speak that. Italian, German. So, you know, if you know another language, that everything doesn't translate. And you have to think in your head, how do I tell these people who only speak English what this means in Spanish or Italian or whatever it is? So the Bible is originally written in Greek, some in Aramaic, but mostly the New Testament is in Greek. And Bible translators are trying to convey to you what they were saying in Greek in our context. So different Bibles will say it different ways. So here it says workmanship. The New Living Translation says masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece masterpiece. And then the second part's a little different too. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The NIV, which is probably my favorite translation to read, says, for we are God's handiwork. Okay, so we got masterpiece, handiwork, workmanship, New Jerusalem Bible. Did anybody bring that today? Anybody got that? Like, Jesus is going to step on me, Bible, Jerusalem Bible. Here we go. Here's one of those. We are God's work of art. So we got work of art, handiwork, masterpiece. The Greek word is poema. It's where we get our word poem. So the rest of the message is going to be a haiku. Just kidding. <laughs> the idea is the craftsmanship that's taking place. I was telling the first service that uh, I've been wanting to get a tattoo for years. And uh, about 20 15, 16, I was talking to a friend of mine, a mentor about it, and I was like, I don't know, am I too old to get it, I didn't got one yet, should I get that too? He said, just wait 12 months and don't do something impulsive, plan it out, what you want it to be like, where you want it, so I have started planning it out. That was in 2015, 2016, (laughs) watching the World Cup with my kids this year, and this guy does a slide tackle, his shorts go up, he's got this leg tattoo, I saw way more of it than I wanted to, come on, let's work on the camera work, guys. One of my kids looks at me and goes, it's time for you to get your tattoo, dad. Stop talking about it. Go. All right. So I started researching. i like, who's going to do it? I don't want him to mess it up. You're drawing on my body. <laughs> so I go meet with this guy. I find a guy. We're talking about it. I said, here's what I want to do. And I want it to be in this spot. And I don't want to have any words on it because I want it to tell a story through the picture. And I some people ask, what does it mean? And then I can tell them about Jesus. And I don't want it to be overtly Jesus. Or they'll just be like, oh, it's one of those Christian guys. That's why he walks that funny way. But anyway." Um, <clears throat> The artist says to me, Oh, people don't ask that anymore. They used to ask, What does the tattoo mean? Now they ask, Who did it? Hmm. It's interesting because there's a spiritual parallel there. You are God's workmanship. Do you see that in the passage? It says that we are his handiwork, masterpiece, work of art, craftsmanship. Poyema. But what he's doing in us actually points people to him. God's the one doing the work. Remember, you're saved by grace, through faith, or else you'd brag about it. Don't boast about it, because God's the one who did it. It was a but God moment, verse 4, that did the whole thing. Why did it happen? Verse 7 tells us the answer to that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. It's to put his glory on display, is the shortcut answer, by the way. And then in verse 10, it's like, don't brag about this. You didn't save yourself. You didn't give yourself new life. You were created as God's work of art. His craftsmanship and he's going to do a work of spiritual transformation. It starts with your new life. Oh, I love that line by Hugh Glass. I'm not afraid to die. I've already died. I've done that. Anybody who's a follower of Christ, if anyone's going to follow me, you must deny yourself. You've got to die to yourself. Hmm. You've died to an old way of life. Now you're Experiencing any, are you? This is the question to ask yourself. Not what do you believe, not whether you come to church, not what vocabulary do you have, beverages do you drink, whatever your background is of what you think it means to be a Christian. Do you have new life? Because if not, it's just the but God moment. It's the only thing that matters. You need that. But if so, here's what you need to know. Uh, you might think to yourself, we're good, and that's why you're not experiencing more. You're The moment of your salvation is not the end of your transformation; it's the beginning. The moment of your salvation is the beginning. It's an incredible transformation, but it's the beginning of your transformation, and it's a process that continues. Philippians one six: He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete the work. And so, it's going to happen through the whole journey. Some of you got a hole in your throat; you've got wounds that need to be healed. Some of you can't walk. If you knew how good this plan is, you'd crawl. Fear stopping you? Oh, what do you have to fear? Fear God. There's nothing else to fear. You've already died. You've been risen. See, the problem is this. We read verses like uh, John chapter 11, verse 43 and 44. Jesus has a friend who's been in the tomb for four days. His name's Lazarus. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. The guy comes walking out, and then Jesus says, unbind him. Take the grave clothes off of him. We get a lot of people that go to church, and they're like, yeah, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. When's the last time you actually followed Jesus? What does it look like to follow? What do you think it was like for the original disciples to wake up in the morning and ask themselves the question, I wonder where Jesus is going to lead us today? And some days it was pretty boring. And then some days there was a miracle. Wow. I bet everybody here wants to see a miracle. I bet nobody here wants to be in a moment where you need a miracle. I'd love to see him calm the storm, but I don't want to get wet. Heal cancer, but I don't want it. How come God doesn't ever, when did the Bible stop being true? Or did we stop following? But I fit in with all the Christians, and I got the badge from memorizing the verses, and I've, I've gotten wet, and I've gotten confirmed, and I've gotten the thing. I have a degree. I even have a job with some Christian type. It's all possible. And miss following Jesus. So, is he doing this work of transformation in you? That's the question. Do you have new life? Because you went from, get this, dead, spiritual death, Chapter 2, verse 1. You were, if you've had a God a moment, were, you are, if you haven't, dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, wait a minute, you weren't dead. You were physically alive. So, what is that even talking about? Remember in Genesis that if you eat of the tree of life, you will die. They ate of the tree of life. They didn't fall down like Ananias and Sapphira dead. Did God not keep his word, or was he talking about a spiritual death? See, spiritual death is that you're not connected to the one who's the source of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. He is life, the God of life. And if you're disconnected from him, you're spiritually dead. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Go back to the passage and look at what was true of every person here at one time, is true of probably the majority of people here right now. Chapter two, verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but then verse two talks about what that was like, in which you once walked, okay, it's a former way of life. I'm going to tell you right now, the former way of life is that you're in bondage, but you have three slave masters. You are a slave, there's three different masters, they all have the same agenda though. Here's who they are. Following the course of this world. Uh, because I'm a preacher and I like to alliterate stuff, I would say the system of this place, system of this world, and the summary of all the teaching we can do with that is, it doesn't matter if it's now, a thousand years ago, it's a system that takes you away from God. to an individualism, two things that are not true. It's not about just protesting Target because they're promoting, you know, satanic sex culture, which is true. That's overt. I think there's a more subtle danger within the church where we sanitize, sterilize, and dare I say castrate Christianity. Make it a moralism, make it what we would like religion to be, put Jesus' name on it, and then wonder, well, why don't you do the stuff you used to do? (laughs) Because you're not following the God that you're reading about. Of course, and if you are a follower of Jesus, just just know this. Of course, people who don't know Jesus are going to follow that system. They don't know Jesus. You know who's leading them? The next part of the passage. Following. So the first following. Following the course of this world. So then the next, what are they doing? Following the prince of the power of the air. Okay, that's Satan, by the way. And we get different images of Satan in our mind. I know that based on your background. Maybe you watch cartoons as a kid. There's a little red devil on one shoulder, an angel on the other shoulder. Do the good thing. No, steal the cookie. Don't pull your sister's hair. Punch her in the face, like the whole thing. And that's your vision. Or some of you know, maybe just from reading the Bible, even the children's Bible, talking snakes. So you're like, snakes are bad. (laughs) Now there's one gentleman in our church. He collects reptiles. There are others of you that are adamant defenders. I take a more biblical stance. I'm against all of them. Mm-hmm. I was out in my yard uh, about two weeks ago. It's 1030 at night. And I saw what I thought was a stick on the ground. So it's like a Moses moment. Pick it up by the tail. Right? Only when Moses picked a snake up, it turned into a stick. When I went to pick the st- what I thought was a stick up, it coiled up. I jumped and squealed like a little girl. I'll just say that. That's ah! moving. Why is that stick moving? Oh, it's going to bite me. I look at it. I'm not a country boy. I don't know reptiles. I didn't know the genome species. One time, about 10 years ago, I killed a black snake. I posted on Facebook because it was huge. I thought it was super cool. I got so condemned, mostly by people in my church. <laughs> oh, that's a good snake. They eat this. They do that. You need to keep them around. I'm like, I'm not keeping any of them around. <laughs> got people posting Wikipedia articles. I was like, I didn't come here for an education. This is oh. all... <laughs> thought it was cool, killed the snake. So I didn't post this one. It was a copperhead. <laughs> what happened was, you know, after I stopped jumping around like a little girl, I grabbed the shovel. I'm like, what are you doing in my yard? Whack. I think we have a picture. Uh, there, there it is. <laughs> head chopped off. That's what you get. That's what you get. Chopped. That's kind of Jesus-like, right? Like he crushed the snake's head, right? On the deal. I cut it off, cut the snake's head off. Uh, then I brought it to the staff meeting the next day at church. <laughs> hmm. The elders weren't there, so I still have a job. None of them liked it. (laughs) Staff hated it, but I thought this will be fun to keep. I'll just use this periodically to be great. However, I would recommend not keeping a snake in your car for three days. (laughs) There's an odor you don't want to have anything to do with. All right? So third day, I'm like, I got, this is terrible. Like I'm I'm like a dog driving my car. And I'm like, can I, I'm gonna throw it away at the gas station. Can I do that? So I Googled it. Oh man, don't do that. Reddit and the venom's in there. for. I'm going to like, I'd kill a gas station clerk. I can't do that. So, Some of us think about Satan. It's like, oh, he's a talking snake. But I don't encounter talking snakes, so it's not really real in my life. And I remember reading a story a few years back about a custody battle that was taking place between a husband and wife. And you know, sometimes those can get ugly. And the wife was saying that the dad should never be able to take the kids because he was a Satanist dad's attorney said you can't rule judge based on his religion or that's religious discrimination and he called an expert witness the expert witness was a satanic priest i want to read to you uh, some of his testimony from this time period in this court battle the satanist priest says satanism doesn't have anything to do with the devil hmm. seems weird to me but okay let me read more i don't know i'm not know not professional Satanist priest here. So the Satanist said, the religion doesn't believe in a real personal devil or any God or supernatural power. Satanism instead worships the ego, the power of self. And he says, that's what the upside down cross is about. The turning on its head, this Christian idea of humility or meekness and servitude. Satanism isn't really devil worship, he said. Since Satan's just a symbol for pride, liberty, and individualism, hmm, that sounds a lot like the world system. Third slave master in our passage, first, system of the world, second, Satan, third, it's you. It's self. So you look at the passage and it says, the prince of the power of the air, following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, self. James says how it happens when he says in James chapter one, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. These slave masters aren't making you do anything you don't want to do. And that gives birth to sin and sin eventually gives birth to separation from God, death. Mm. But God, that's who you once were. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been freed from the slave master and free to walk in the workmanship that God has for you, the handiwork to be transformed, inner walking, that's an outward works. The next part of our passage, is the last word that we'll squeeze for a moment, isn't the workmanship, it's not the walk, it's the works. That there are good works that God prepared beforehand before time, God had a plan for your life. This is what you were made for. So what are these good works? Aren't good works bad? It said in verses 8 and 9, not to boast, it's not of works, or we'd boast. The Bible talks like this in other places. In Titus chapter 3 it talks about our salvation. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Okay, and then you skip down a couple of verses, and it says this in verse 8 The saying is trustworthy. Okay, believe what I'm telling you, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Wait! It's not good work. When you understand what's happening in Ephesians, this makes total sense. The work that God is doing in your life is for a reason. It's verse seven, which we haven't read yet. Verse seven in Ephesians chapter two says this. You were dead in your trespasses and sinned. You've been made alive in Christ. We just walked through that. Verse two, three, but God, verse four, it's by grace only, verse five. But then verse seven says why this happened. So that in the coming ages, that's eternity, he, God, might show the immeasurable riches. And if you study the Bible on your own, just look at riches in this book the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. So the reason why God picked a person who was against him and a system against him, following a being, Satan, who's against him, and they wanted to do it, the reason why God would do something we would never imagine, put on skin, become one of us, live the life we couldn't live, a sinless life in a sinful world without adopting the sinful way of the world, and still walk not by the flesh's will, but by God's will, plan, what He's made for, and then lay his life down and die for the very people who are killing him, unthinkable, was to put his glory on display. It's the problem for many of us, we wanna know what are these good works? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Um, we treat this book sometimes like it's a treasure map, and if we just follow the right formula, there's a pot of gold at the end. Maybe a leprechaun in your lucky charms. What if the book is the plan? What if the pot of gold is him? What you're gonna find out in this sent series is that God's the one who's doing the sending. You're being sent by God. You're sent as his ambassador in Christ. You're gonna have a whole message just on that. You're sent for God. You're sent by God. You're sent for God. And do you know where you end up? With God. You're sent by God, for God, to God. And there are things in the Bible that you're like, did i just tell you the plan. I've got a, a handout here. Somebody categorized all the commandments in the New Testament. This person says there's over a thousand for sure. It depends on who's counting. He says 1,050 New Testament commandments. There's ask, ask and ye shall receive. There's abstain, abstain from idols and fornication. There's be, be exceedingly glad. There's two things to wake up to, awake to righteousness, awake to life. We know we're commanded to love one another. We know we're commanded to make disciples. We know we're commanded to be holy. That's universally true. That is the universal plan of God for every follower of Jesus. What you wanna know is the unique plan, and he has that too. But it's not separate from the universal. And so I look out here, I see people with different stories. I see my friend Jock. Celebrated. Congratulations, Jock. 39 years of marriage this week. He's the chairman of our elders. Yeah, there we go. Got my friend James and Carrie. We'll be praying for Carrie and her battle with cancer after the service today. I got different folks here. This guy, taller, more tan, and more hands, got a better beard than me. They're different. All different stories. Got different stories here. My friend Nick. God's plan, universal plan is to transform all of us into the image of Christ that are followers of Jesus. That's his workmanship. That's his craftsmanship. That's what he's doing. When James becomes the image of Christ that God desires for James to become, James and I are not going to look the same. And it's not just because you're taller and more handsome. It's not just because you've got different gifts. Because you think about this. There's a universal plan. Everyone here, if you know the Bible, you know that each person's been uniquely gifted. But look, I see my friend Todd. Todd's got a gift of teaching. I have a gift of teaching. When Todd teaches and I teach, it's not the same. We have different gifts. Some of you have a gift of mercy. Somebody else has a gift of mercy. The way it gets expressed is different. Why? Because you're a different person with a different personality, different experiences, born into this world at different moments, in relationships with different people. You have different passions. You have different desires. The real work in that's taking place for you to find out the path that God wants you to walk on is Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Some of us as Americans read that like, oh, if I just do what God tells me to do, then he's going to give me the things that I want. No, if you delight yourself in God, he's going to change your heart so that your heart is his heart. So there's a universal plan. Make disciples, love people, be holy. And there's a unique way that it works out in each one of our lives. And if I looked at you, or you, or you, and I told you, if somehow I knew, this is what God is going to have you be like in 20 years. As he's transforming you, and you're walking, and trying to go on the path, and it is steps forward, there are steps back, there are distractions, you might have a limp, you'd crawl to get there, because it's beyond what you could imagine. And I know God has a bigger plan for you than you think he does. Because he's a bigger God than you could ever imagine. I know some of you think to yourself, but not me. Maybe for Pastor Danny, he's the missions pastor. Or maybe for Todd, he's got a teaching gift, but not for me. I just have whatever gift you have. I don't even know if I have a gift. Or if you knew my story, I'm so bad. Or I'm such. I know, I know that God has a bigger plan for you than you could ever imagine because He is a bigger God than you think He is. I was encouraging some friends today. I said, Who knows what God has in store for you today? David woke up one morning, a cheese delivery boy, and ended going to bed, a giant slayer. Who knows? If you could see who God wants you to be in 10 years, 20 years, you'd crawl to get there. And some of you know that because you're not today who you were 10 years ago. If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, detours, pain, unforeseen, there will be an adventure, whether you want one or not. Think about the boy who, who God used to feed 5,000 people one day. What do you think his life was like? Because all we ever hear from pastors, right, is like, he gave everything he had, five loaves, a couple of fish. It's like the dude had some bruschetta and anchovies. That's a gross lunch, by the way. If you're ever like, pastor, we should grab lunch. Don't even think about it, all right? Bruschetta and anchovies, just salty fish and some hard bread. No way. Ah, Debatable. <laughs> Question uh, for those of you online, might not I got that on the mic? Is it better than fruitcake? I don't know. Anchovies. I mean, it's kind of like. Have you seen Inside Out? Way to ruin pizza, San Francisco. I mean, throw some pepperonis on there. It's still like Jerusalem. Way to go! You ruined pizza. Anchovies and hard bread. Whatever. But all pastors ever say is, "Hey, he gave everything he had. Give everything you have to God. God will do an amazing thing." There's truth in that. But what about that boy? We don't even know his name. Let's just say his name Jimmy, right? Yeah, people in the Bible can have American names, right? Like this is Luke and Mark, and we stole them. But anyway, um, so Jimmy, his mom makes him the lunch. He had to be like, oh, mom, whatever. All right, wrap it up. Goes on, comes home. Mom says, hey, Jimmy, how was your day? Good. He's a boy. <laughs> you get a lot of words. Did you like the lunch I made you? i make like, what boy doesn't want anchovies and bruschetta? So, mom, you'd never believe what happened. I fed 5,000, well, this guy named Jesus, but I fed 5,000 people with that lunch. Oh, okay, honey. <laughs> Imaginary stuff going on right there. Yeah, 5,000. And here's the real miracle of the story. People ate it. So him, Jesus made it taste good. <laughs> Jesus could even make fruitcake taste good. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Who knew? When he left his house that day, what God would do. You can't even fathom what God wants to do in you. But you've got to step out the adventure. How do you know? Well, we're going to unpack that in the series. You need to know him. I said, my friend Jock, I'm married for 39 years. Do you know, can you imagine what it'd be like to know in this situation? This is probably what God would think, feel, say, because you know him so well. That means you got to know him. You got to know yourself. You got to know other people and you must be led by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about those things. But will you step out? Are you ready for an adventure? Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence Everybody here at a different place, there are some people who don't know you. I pray right now would be their but God moment that they would trust your son Jesus Christ as their Savior right now. If he's stirring in your heart, that's not you, that's him. If you're wondering, should I? Maybe. What would it be like? I don't know if I could. That's the gift of God. You are saved by grace. It's not something you earned. You didn't deserve it through faith. That's a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, the fact that he's stirring is his gift, that you're not just following the world system. The angel of this air, of the air, the prince of darkness, your own flesh. You're considering the things of God. If that's you, you say, God, do the rest of the work. Save me. Move from death to life. Move from separated from him to connected to him. And you do that just by saying, I don't deserve you, I've sinned, I need you, I want you. You pray that right now. Whether you're watching at a Starbucks, in your house, six months from now on your computer, or in this room, cry out, he promises he will rescue you. Those of you who have, he has begun a good work in you. It's just the beginning though. Some of you have been stuck since that beginning. It's time to take the next step. And so you need to ask the Holy Spirit right now, what's my next step? What does it look like to experience more? He's going to do the work, whether you want to or not. There's a painful route. There's a less painful route. But there will be challenges. There will be unexpected. He will be with you. Some of you have never made a disciple before. What would it look like for you to begin that relationship? Some of you have sin. You know you need to confess. It's been hidden You don't think anybody knows? It's impacting every relationship in your life and you don't see it. Some of you have gotten sucked back into the world system. You haven't, like Lazarus, come out. Take off the grave clothes. Put on the new life that Jesus has for you. Turn. Some of you need rest for your soul. You've been trying to do this in your own strength. Being moral. Conforming to even a unique part of America. And that version of a subculture of Christianity, and God's got so much more. It's more wild. It's more dangerous. There's a lot of risk, but it's better. What does it look like to take a step into that? What does it look like to have a conversation with somebody today? What does it look like to be vulnerable with another human? Because you weren't supposed to do this alone. That's the world system. That's Satan's plan to isolate you and lie to you Of the 1,050 commands in the New Testament, 59 of them require another person. You can't be obedient without being in those kinds of relationships. It's not even possible. And the crazy part is that part of Ephesians chapter 1 is that God's living inside of you. So those commandments that you could never do, you're right. But the one who wrote them will empower you to do them as you step into them. And he is with you, he is in you a deposit given to you one, chapter 1 verse 13 until the day of redemption he will be dwelling inside of you don't quench him you can be filled guided the good works look a lot like the fruit of the spirit self control gentleness love joy do you want joy? walk with him your own flesh will tell you there's other ways and it will lead to sin and separation from God but he's gracious if you confess he's faithful and just he will cleanse you again restore that relationship. You do what you need to do with him. The Holy Spirit, the still small voice that Elijah talks about, not in the wind, not in the fire. The promptings of the Holy Spirit. Prompt around this room right now. Holy Spirit, prompt, convict, encourage, exhort, remind, rebuke, do your work, have a thousand conversations. Stir in the hearts of my friends, my kids, the guys that I mentioned in the service, Nick, Jock, James, Teresa, stir and work and move. Pastor Bryce is going to come and use his gift of leading us in worship. If you feel led to cry out to God as a result, an overflow of his immeasurable riches in your life, then I invite you to stand and do that. If you decide that you want to continue to talk to Jesus, you can do that. And I pray, Jesus, you'd heal. Heal spiritually, cast out demons, heal cancer, restore relationships. Stern hearts. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info@sfchurch.com. At for additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.